This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. partner at Control Risks. This episode is part of our ongoing series on ESG. In previous episodes, we've looked at the role that ethics and compliance professionals play in this space and the importance of having experts on site. In today's episode, we'll be looking at modern slavery and how to effectively identify and proactively manage this in your value chain. Even just the term modern slavery evokes strong feelings of social justice. And in a business context, companies affected by it at any level of their supply chain can suffer significant reputational damage, and for some, investor action or discontent. A robust and nuanced program will help companies demonstrate commitment in this important aspect of ESG. I'm joined today by two experts who bring experience and their perspective from different points in the globe, Brazil and Dubai, to help answer what does a good risk management program look like? And how do you build one? So a warm welcome to Juliana Ramalho, a partner at Matos Filios Law Firm. She's based in Brazil. Welcome, Juliana. Hi, thank you for inviting me. And a warm welcome also to my colleague, Catherine Fletcher, who is a director in our social compliance practice. She's based in Dubai. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, Maria. It's great to speak to you and Juliana today. We know that E occupies a lot of limelight within what risk issues fall under the ESG or sustainability umbrella. But S attracts significant public scrutiny, especially when businesses get it wrong, and especially in this past year. These issues are tricky. They're often very localized, and they can be more difficult to measure and quantify. So today we're focused on human rights and within that also labor rights in the supply chain and in the value chain. Catherine, I'll start with you. What are the pressure points that are bringing this top of the agenda for your clients? I mean, clients come to us for a range of different reasons. Sometimes they have been made aware of social problems relating to their own company or companies in their supply chain. And sometimes the way that that information has come to light is through a whistleblower who is alleging labor rights problems, abuses, or exploitation. It could be through an activist or an NGO who's making similar claims about the company or its supply chain. And so they're coming to us almost in a, in a crisis phase of needing to understand what's gone wrong, why did it happen, how do we stop it from happening again in the future. Other companies come to us because they are aware of the risks and the issues in their sector or in their industry and they want to get onto the front foot. So they want to address that and identify the problems before they've happened. And that's obviously a great place to be in. And sometimes actually it's because a client has been asked by an investor or a shareholder or some other stakeholder to explain what it is that they're doing in this space. How are they identifying the risks? How are they managing risks? What measures are they putting in place? So it sounds like there's quite a spectrum from companies that, as you said, are trying to get on the front foot about this and maybe market leaders and others are responding maybe in quick time and and under significant pressure. 
to issues that arise, which I guess throws up a whole range of different responses. Juliana, how about you in your capacity as a lawyer? Are you seeing the same sort of triggers? Yeah, pretty much pretty much the same, Maria. I should say that ESG only gained its strength in Brazil after much has already been discussed in other countries. And therefore, the movement here, when compared to international scene, it's still shy. But in the last year, the subject has been increasing on the investment agenda. And so I would say the first pressure here, it's pretty much the investor agenda. As more investors incorporate ESG into their investment strategy, more pressure will be placed on companies. What we are seeing here, it's, it's a growing capital flow for assets and companies that are in line with ESG principles. At the same time, we are hearing some companies looking to divest their holdings in companies whose process do not move in that direction. And going forward, I, I would just point out that millennials are starting to manage a great share of global wealth, and they want to do so in a way that aligns with their values about fairness and human rights. And last but not least, I would say that the pandemic played a fundamental role here in Brazil. It placed a, a really spotlight in the importance of social issues. Can I pick up on that, Juliana? I, I, your point about millennials managing wealth and also the significance of these issues coming to light in Brazil are, are really interesting points and brings us to maybe shed, shed light or point a light on what the most significant issues you're seeing in your market around human rights, around labor rights, particularly thinking of some of the sectors will be quite closely tied to those issues and highly exposed to those human rights and labor issues. I'd be really interested to hear from, from your Brazil perspective. Just for a matter of introduction, I think it's important to point it out that labor relations in Brazil are governed by many labor laws, but we have also our constitution, our federal constitution that legalizes unions, collective bargain, sets overtime rates, provides monthly minimum wage, it lists a variety of labor rights, including maternity leave, vacation, works, compensation, social services. But those rights are for employees who represent just a part of our society. We have a big informal sector here in Brazil, composed of workers who do not have the basic or minimal working conditions. And that's what really worries us, because many informal works are in the supply chain of some industries, agro-industry, retail industry, we see a lot of immigrants in the retail industry, which poses a big challenge for some companies. And COVID-19 has added an extra challenge in managing human rights risks in the supply chains. Because companies, has, they, they have observed the need to support suppliers to protect workers. And also, they were not able to do their due diligence sometimes. So it, it has this extra challenge. And I should just point out that another big issue in Brazil is racial discrimination. And companies are starting to pay attention to that, especially that after some episodes that appear in the big media. We had a very big episode last year regarding a big grocery store here in Brazil with racial discrimination. And in the end, there was a death of a man. And it, it became a big movement here in Brazil for companies to really pay attention to this point. That's really interesting. And then certainly an issue that's gained prominence in other countries this past year for the better, and, and obviously not totally new issues to Brazil, but it seems that the public scrutiny and kind of collective action around these issues is, is gaining ground, which sounds very positive. Catherine, you're coming at this from predominantly a Middle East and Africa perspective, where things are a little bit different, starting with first and foremost labor laws and, and unions. 
completely different in your region. What other kind of contrasts can you bring to light and, and share with us your perspective on the most important human rights and labor rights issues in your market? Absolutely. Some of the things that Juliana has already mentioned are similar, but there are some kind of big contrasts here as well. I think foremost among those is going to be the demographic of the workforce in the Middle East, which is predominantly a migrant workforce. So you have a large number of workers who are coming from source countries, if you like, and they can be from Africa, as we've mentioned, from places like India, Nepal, Pakistan. And when those workers arrive into the Middle East, their lives really revolve around their work. They are sponsored by their employer. So that's their visa sponsorship. Their accommodation might be provided by their employer, their food, their transport, and of course, their, their pay and other benefits. So that relationship between employer and employee is maybe quite different here. And of course, as you can imagine, the, the risks uh, and the possibilities of exploitation are somewhat exacerbated by that relationship. So you know, if we talk about the impacts of COVID, where we've seen that really take a toll in the Middle East is around the payment of workers, because companies that have suffered cash flow problems because they've lost projects or contracts during COVID, that has had a direct impact on workers who have not been paid or there's been severe delays in their payments. But equally, you know, the workers have not been able to go home. They have been, in some cases, sort of trapped in the Middle East because they have lost their work and can't get back to their home country because of COVID restrictions. And also, in some cases, you know, passports, which are taken off the worker when they arrive into the Middle East illegally, I should point out, if they're not given back to the worker, they really they can't travel. So there are some very significant different issues that we deal with here. You've each presented very different operational realities from from your perspectives, which I think is fascinating. And there's some commonalities, especially when it comes to the range of issues and just the, the sheer variety of issues. You've mentioned kind of race and ethnicity, nationalities, and, and that sort of thing. You've mentioned the reach of these issues beyond employees into other areas of the value chain. But clearly, some, some very significant differences in the expectations, the standards, the obligations on companies in these markets. And quite a challenge, I guess, to establish what a good baseline is. So that brings us to our first theme, which is around what good looks like, considering the, the commonalities, but also the differences in, in different operating environments. Many labor rights management programs, for instance, are fairly generic. We've seen they don't always capture these relevant nuanced or, or localized risks, and they can, as a result, provide an accurate picture on the state of your program, of its effectiveness, and thereby create blind spots where these significant issues you've mentioned may arise. So, Juliana, I'll go back to you and ask from your perspective, how are businesses assessing what good looks like? And perhaps you could tell us as well what standards they are assessing that against. Generic doesn't really work. It's fundamental to assess your sector, your context, and your business in order to really determine which human rights is at the greatest risk of impacting the normal course of its operations. So engagement with local stakeholders will often enable a better understanding of the context in which business enterprises operate. Also, businesses are looking to each other and try to follow best practices such as to include contractual mechanisms dedicated to dissemination of compliance obligations with suppliers, and mostly performing due diligence to identify risks. Your risks and of your business partners. You need to understand your context. Otherwise, you're just going to really, as you said, just create blind spots. I would also say that 
maybe to use the traditional compliance practices that you have and policies. They can be adapted to advance human and labor rights implementation and oversight. Sometimes people just don't know how to start to really implement a human rights program inside the company. And they have already compliance programs inside the companies and they can just adapt and use them. So I guess that could be a first step for some of the business also. And Juliana, within that, you've mentioned compliance, which is clearly important. And within that, there is international best practice, there's industry best practice, but there's also local legislation, which in Brazil is quite busy, I understand, in, in this area. So how can companies juggle that kind of compliance with local legislation with the demands that come with international best practice? The thing, Maria, is that if a company comply with Brazilian local legislation, they're already doing a very good work. Because as I said before, we have a very protective legislation. And to comply with those legislation, it's expensive. So many companies do not comply with. They would already be following international best practice if they comply with our legislation. That would be our first step here in Brazil. And that's the challenge, because as I said before, we have a very big informal sector. So the thing is really to comply with our legislation here. That's incredibly useful. And you're mentioning the informal sector, I guess, brings us back to the first point you made around the solution sometimes being really local and also engagement within an industry or sector for collective action, for benchmarking and, and that sort of thing, given, given the fact that a lot of it falls out of the first line for a company. And Catherine, I'll go back to you because, again, you're working in quite a different environment. The local legislation, of course, is stringent in some ways, but a little bit arm's length in other ways. So where are the companies that you're working with looking for guidance on what good looks like and what standards they should kind of strive towards? Interestingly, I agree with Juliana that for a lot of companies, if they would just comply with the local legislation, they would be in a really much stronger situation than, than many of them currently are. And I say that because what we find here in the Middle East and in Africa as well is that companies have built business models around a, an understanding of the legislation that is not compliant, but that is cost effective for them. And that, that issue of cost, as Juliana has already mentioned, is absolutely, it's a challenge. And it's something that when companies realize the cost of complying, they have to accept this is the reality if they want to improve before we even look at things like best practice. What I have seen working well is where companies commit to not just complying with the, the local legislation, but adding on certain areas where they know that they can strive for better. A good example actually is around freedom of association, collective bargaining, something that in the UAE, for example, is not supported by local law. However, there are ways that you can still sort of capture the, the essence and the spirit of, of that concept internationally by giving workers a voice, by having worker representative committees by ensuring that there are grievance mechanisms in place for employees to use whenever they need to. So companies need to be creative sometimes to find solutions that work, but it doesn't mean that you can sort of put your hands up and say, this is just not possible in this region. I think that's sometimes that can be an, an excuse. <laughs> that's very motivating in a way, Catherine, because what you're suggesting is looking to international best practice and, and reading it into your local markets or adapting it 
to what you can achieve in your local markets. And I think that might generate a little bit of optimism among our, our listeners, which is great. You've both touched on the issue of cost, and clearly our listeners have a lot of experience navigating the struggle for kind of budget and resources, especially as the issues are expanding that come under their remit. And each of you has touched upon, maybe in other words, prioritizing issues and then then prioritizing kind of quick wins and also kind of finding opportunities where you can where you can do better. And and we know that tailored programs will also help companies to demonstrate a risk-based approach, which is a much stronger starting point. Many of the companies that you work with are headquartered outside your own markets. So how do they get to grips with the issues in their value chain in order to prioritize those those issues? Catherine, I might just start with you. I think we've already discussed the fact that the starting point has to be to understand the risks that are relevant in the market or the operating environment that you're dealing with through your operations. So I can give an example here about, as I mentioned already, worker accommodation or or where companies house employees in sort of company-provided accommodation. Now, if you're an international company, that might be relevant in some jurisdictions in which you operate, not relevant in others. It may be some cases where you provide an allowance to your employees with which they can sort of choose their own accommodation. I think the point is you need to be, you need to understand what is compliance and what does it look like in those different scenarios. So for example, if you're in the Middle East and you're going to provide accommodation for your workers to live in, it needs to comply with the local legislation about worker accommodation to make sure that it's it's safe and it's healthy for them to live in. If you're going to provide an allowance, so a financial amount for, for the worker to use, then are you giving an amount that enables that employee to select accommodation that is legal? Or are you really giving them just a token amount that actually almost forces them to live in accommodation that is 20 people living in a room, for example, and and that does happen. So without understanding what the risks are, you're not going to be able to identify the different solutions and changes that might need to be made. It sounds like there's really no shortcut to really getting to grips with your markets and, and, and business mapping and doing that upfront assessment with which Juliana, you mentioned earlier on as well. And Juliana, from your perspective, and you mentioned the obligations around workforce and employees in Brazil that are quite significant. What do you see or do you see a difference between how a company should think about and and handle the issues affecting kind of their own workforce versus how they kind of get to grips with and handle the issues within their broader value chain? It's much easier for companies to really handle the internal issues. And usually they well, let's just mention like very a multinational company. They handle very well the rights of the workers in within the company. When it comes to the value chain, it's it's another conversation. Sometimes they just include some contractual clauses in, in the agreements, but they don't really monitor the value chain. And and it's fundamental to monitor the value chain to really check what's going on there. You can use pretty basic questions, like for example, this supplier have high turnover. Are there frequent reports of waging and hours violations in, in those factories? Are there frequent reports of accidents? How do this company compare to its competitors? So it's very basic questions that companies can use to really monitor their value chain, and many don't do it. And, and I've been talking to some companies since I, I've just said that ESG started really to flow in Brazil since last year. And I've talked to, I, I don't know, like 
70 or more companies really talk about ESG and the challenges of the S and touch in the supply chain. And I, from these 70 companies, and I would say some are retailers, some are in the agribusiness, and all of them have challenges in the supply chain. And many of them did not have any type of monitor process or any type of auditing. It's so different, the treatment, that it's hard even to point it out. It sounds like an absolutely critical part of the equation, Juliana. Catherine, what do you see day in, day out? Like Juliana, you're advising companies on these issues and also assessing their the strength of their programs, designing programs, but also implementing monitoring and longer-term kind of monitoring solutions. What do you see as key for organizations in terms of resources and, and expertise that they need within their organization or that they need to bring in externally to, to do this right, to monitor effectively on an ongoing basis? Well, it certainly helps to have a social sustainability or social impact expert in your organization, somebody that does understand the different risks that exist in different markets and operating environments, but also who can do that horizon scanning. You know, things change constantly and risks can emerge where you least expect them, particularly if you're entering into a new market or a new area of business. Again, being on the front foot with understanding where the risks may come from is going to help you. Having said that, not every company is going to be in a position to hire in that expertise. And of course, companies like ourselves and others are are very useful in that situation to, to build capacity and provide support. But even within your own company, there will be people who can help you because you have colleagues in human resources or personnel departments who do understand employment rights and benefits and can help potentially with some of the internal monitoring that needs to happen. Similarly, with health and safety expertise or supply chain managers who can look at contracts with suppliers, look at the clauses that could be used to leverage where changes are required. So I think there's, there's a lot of internal support that can be gathered, but there's, there's training that probably needs to happen. There is capacity building that needs to happen so that you almost create a, a team of people who have an awareness and understanding of the issues and can contribute to helping fix problems when they come up. Nowadays, we're talking a lot about ESG and mostly companies are, are seeing that there is a very uh, spotlight in, in diversity and climate change. But you need to be honest with your company. You need to really understand your issues and not just take diversity and climate change as the big issues. They are very big issues, but maybe you have another issues. So you really need to assess yourself and understand yourself. Be honest. What good looks like is not going to be the same in every country or every market that you're operating in. A high-risk supplier in one location might feel very different to a high-risk supplier in another location. And that's something that I think companies have to get comfortable with because, as we've said, one size doesn't fit all. And there will be different solutions, different mechanisms that may need to be implemented in different countries. And I think once that's been accepted internally, then things become a lot easier. This has been, for me, a fascinating discussion. Clearly, you're both knowledgeable about this area. Thank you very much for your contributions this morning, Juliana. It was great to hear from you. Thank you, Maria. And thank you, Katrin. It was a pleasure talking to you today. And thanks so much, Catherine, also for your insight. It's great to have you as part of this conversation. That was great. Thank you, Maria. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening today. There'll be more episodes in this series, so please look out for them. You'll find Juliana and Catherine's contact details in the podcast notes. 
Happy listening. If you enjoyed what you heard today on Legal and Compliance Insights, make sure to subscribe and check out our other podcasts as well, like The Global Insight, a fortnightly conversation about the most pressing issues facing businesses around the world. All our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you.